Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and um, welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Victoria Lupashko, one of the New Books Network's hosts, and today we are here with Caitlin Bruce to talk about her book, Painting Publics, Transnational Legal Graffiti Scenes as Spaces for Encounter. Thank you very much, Caitlin, for making time to speak to us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'll start with a a very broad question and, um, you know, just to um, to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to this research. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, sure. So I think the um, the global answer <laughs> is that I grew up in a family very interested in the arts. Um, my family had a non-for-profit theater company called Moose Hall in Upper Manhattan that started in the 90s. So I, you know, whereas some kids, you know, work at the family business, um, my job was odds and ends for the theater company, which meant being in public space and seeing the impact uh, that art has in public spaces and also the conflicts and disagreements around art and public space. So I think that kind of established some background. And then when I moved in sh- to Chicago, um, I learned about a-, a few different things, but the mural arts movement was one really inspiring uh, context for being in the city and thinking about the power of art as a communicative medium. Um, and I'd also been taking an urban history course about how design uh, shapes possibilities for encounter. So I think kind of from that moment, I was really interested in the intersection between public art and communicative processes. And then later I had the good fortune of being on a, a class trip with a friend who was TAing. Uh, in art history, and we went on a mural tour, and I learned about the meaning of styles, graffiti festivals. So while I had already done some research uh, in undergrad, where I had gotten to interview a number of muralists around the city, particularly in uh, Latino communities, um, this festival uh, offered a way to think about graffiti in a more accessible way, and also resolve some of the concerns I had about uh, studying a, a culture that where when you're, you know, documenting it, there's there's more risk involved in documenting uh, for the practitioners. And so the legal festival seemed less risky, seemed like there was a lot more to be said about it. So at that moment, not a lot had been written about permission or sanctioned uh, graffiti. Um, and I was really taken with the, the way the international uh, was really present in Meeting of Style. So from Meeting of Style Chicago, I kind of got to go all over the place to Mexico and France and Germany. Um, among other places. That's great. That's very, uh, very cool, I would say. And um, it also <laughs> speaks, you know, it kind of segues very nicely into, you know, into this, uh, the question, right, of why legal graffiti scenes and mm-hmm. not, you know, because most of um, of debates for the past few years have been, you know, coalescing around illegal graffiti or mm-hmm. graffiti as a space of, of resistance mm-hmm. um, and the legal graffitis or, you know, the, the murals that um, emerge, you know, in New York City or other places in the world um, didn't get as much attention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, a question that uh, I wanted to ask was about this uh, illegal legal dichotomy yeah. that 
um, is present throughout the book, but you know you kind of see it from the very title that mm-hmm. you 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 chose the the legal scenes. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think I would want to reference what I learned from one of the the writers, and so that's Lavi Raven from Chicago, who said um, that you know it's legal and illegal is not cut and dry. In fact, what's most interesting are all the different gray areas that uh, style writing occupies in different kinds of urban spaces. And so there he's discussing about uh, the way that this concept of legal and illegal is, is socially constructed. It's constructed by laws that are only ever really reflections of certain kinds of um, understandings of property and power and control. And so I would, I would kind of push back against the idea that there is an essential dichotomy between the legal and the illegal, although, of course, those terms um, inform people's different people's investments um, and attachments to the culture in different ways. Um, but also for me, I think permission spaces are interesting and exciting because as a scholar of communication and of publics and, and publicity, it's a moment where there's a really conscious turn towards addressing a broader public, um, a public uh, not necessarily occupied by writers who can decode uh, really textured uh, and, and complicated uh, f- figurations. And so that, that transitional moment for me is really interesting because it raises all these questions about, you know, who is, who is graffiti for? Who does it serve? What happens when it becomes accessible? What is gained and what is lost? How do you... Um, represent such a rich movement that's so multifaceted to unpredictable publics that happen by uh, in different spaces. So, so those were some of the things that I was thinking about. Um, yeah. And, and then also, you know, I think there's so much rich scholarship already on the illegal. Um, so I was, you know, really inspired by Joe Austin's work, Jessica Pavon, um, you know, Nancy McDonald, uh, Allison Young. So those are all folks that I, you know, read in in grad school and later on who do really great work on the illegal. And so I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, kind of add to a conversation that hadn't so much happened around permission and permission spaces. Absolutely. And, you know, it's also the, uh, the difference in, in the the understanding of of permission and also, you know, the dichotomy legal, illegal in the countries that Mm -hmm. you look at, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's not a blanket uh, kind of statement or Mm -hmm. understanding of of this idea of, you know, the wall or permission or, you know, who gets to, Mm -hmm. to read or who gets to look at these, um, these works of art. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a very, even if we're talking about legal as you know a common denominator, then it's still not the same, mm-hmm. which I found I found very interesting. Yeah, um, and in, also the public, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's different. Yeah, um, I think that's really helpful. And exactly this question of um, when you look at graffiti from a transnational perspective, you are made more aware of the kinds of contingencies of law itself, and that law can be otherwise. Law doesn't have to be the way it is. And I think that's important because it allows us to kind of push back against uh, repressive legal regimes that would try to criminalize forms of expression that have historically been very, very, very important for a lot of folks, but particularly folks um, from marginalized social positions that are kind of speaking about, um, you know, structural neglect and violence and things like that. So I would also say kind of in conversation with uh, your earlier part of your question about rupture and resistance, I mean, I think that um, I'm interested in what I kind of call mid-level moments of resistance, which is to say that both rupture and continuity are important parts of our 
our, our uh, lived experience. And so the mid-level for me is really interesting because it's often harder to see than really dramatic moments of rupture, which of course are extremely important, but a little bit more fleeting and a little less common. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, from my own perspective, I do believe that the process, right? So the mm. the, the way you get to this very dramatic uh, rupture, right, uh, in mm-hmm. whichever field uh, or, you know, uh, domain, then um, it's very important because it actually explains or gives enough clues mm. to understand the rupture itself mm-hmm. as opposed to you know, just coming to the rupture and understanding or trying to do the backward, uh, the backstepping. Yeah, uh, um, yeah I so, think that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, also that relates to this other concern, uh, an issue that the book is trying to think through, which is about graffiti's institutionalization and kind of um, uptake in formal art worlds and commercial spheres. And so one of the ways that I think it is taken up and functions as a form of, of cultural capital is because it's seen as edgy. And so it's that rupture without context that I think allows it to be kind of appropriated, co-opted and used in ways that ignore it, its very contextual uh, you know, emergence. And so, so yeah, I think you're pointing to a really important question, which is about context. Right. And um, also the public, right? And you do spend... Mm-hmm. Um, quite a bit of oh, time yeah. talking about the public in the book and you know how um you know the public itself but also public art right um, mm. uh, enables these spaces um for different types of encounters whether it's pedagogical mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know it's intergenerational conversation or just artists coming to mm-hmm. to look at each other's works right yeah. so i was wondering whether um you know uh, you could tell us more mm-hmm. about the the way you understand the spaces of encounter mm-hmm. Uh, with the public in mind, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think, as you mentioned, uh, the way that encounters work are, are site-specific. Um, but yeah, the, the goal in the book was to try to set up some theoretical or conceptual architecture for thinking through how um, art might contribute to a more democratic public space. So that was the overall goal. Uh, thinking with um, scholars in political theory and art history and philosophy, uh, like Bonnie Honig and Rosalind Deutsch and Fred Evans, um, Iconic and, and others. But those are folks I've been thinking through st- stuff with and about for a while. Um, interested in thinking about like, what are the ingredients that make for uh, encounters that I would posit as generative and helpful in thinking about engaging across social differences. And so the elements that I isolate are um, agonism, interrelationality, and plurality. So agonism is this political theory concept, which is that in, in democratic cultures, you know, it's important to have disagreements. Uh, consensus is not a realistic goal, nor should it be. Rather, it's about having robust disagreements to acknowledge that uh, things are always in flux and in motion. Um, but that's not the same as antagonism, which is, you know, about trying to eliminate the other. Um, interrelationality is trying to push back against a kind of heroic, uh, individualistic model of politics and instead acknowledges that, you know, in, in making public art and maintaining public spaces, we only ever do that in relationships with others and we're interdependent on each other, which I think is one of the insights that I'm trying to pull out and thinking about how graffiti might teach us about like less capitalist models of public space making and keeping. Um, and then plurality, so thinking across difference and that difference is, is, a, is a social good and it's fundamental to public life. And so I think that these kinds of concepts are actually innate in a lot of graffiti culture, which is about competition, which is about 
um, collaborative, you know, work, which is about um, working, has historically been a, a movement that works across social differences in really robust ways. So, so encounter happens through the art form, but also then the art itself creates opportunities for, for the artists and for passersby to engage with each other and the spaces in more robust ways, because the art highlights the possibility of space being different, being otherwise. Um, and so in terms of publics, uh, I am thinking about public as plural. So there are different kinds of publics that happen in different moments. And so that also points to the ways that encounters are also variable depending on one's context and history. So in the chapter about Chicago, I was you know interested in how someone that grew up in, in Little Village uh, will likely have a, a different kind of encounter with the art than someone who's visiting specifically for the festival and has never been in that neighborhood before um, versus the artists who, you know, you have used those walls for years and maybe even decades. And so have very deep relationships to the space, um, you know, versus, uh, photographers for some sort of like graffiti magazine that just want like nice pictures and maybe are connected to the space in that kinds of way. So the encounters are also variable, just like the public is not uh, singular, but it's uh, plural. Right, right, absolutely, and I, I do have a question uh, mm-hmm. about uh, the chapter on on the Chicago sure. scene uh, later on, um, and you know it's just uh, when I was reading the the introduction, um, there's this um, the, this phrase saying that graffiti uh, is the stepchild of public art. That stuck mm. to me, um, <laughs> right? And um, I mean, I agree with it. It's just it was very uh, interesting because you know, thinking of what you you said about publics and surfaces, and um, you know, the encounter with the space as being otherwise, not just you know something that we pass by and or we pass through, and that is it. Uh, more of you know, sitting or standing and mm-hmm. listening and interacting. Um, you know, I uh, the question that kind of emerged in my head was about this idea of uh, enabling, right? Enabling encounter mm-hmm. or enabling the space itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and no, you know, I don't want to throw any shade about you know stepchildren as actually existing humans. Um, there, there. I was just pointing to how you know graffiti is often I think referenced in a kind of throwaway way either in public media, but also less so now, I think, in the last 10 years, but often in academic writing, too. Um, it's used as like a stand-in for all kinds of things and rarely taken up on its own terms. So in thinking about that and then also thinking about the argument of the book, which is about encounter, um, I think I'm interested in enabling in terms of texture and context. So, you know, if spaces, urban spaces are often designed to be smooth and to mitigate against interactions accumulating on their surfaces and people stopping and engaging with each other in ways that are more than transactional, then I would hope that like texture offers like little foot, like quite literally <laughs> little affective footholds or handholds uh, into spaces where we can kind of mark and leave, you know, layers and traces and uh, accumulate in public space. So so I think that's one way to think about this question of enabling. And then the other way is, is more literal, and that's what came out of the field work, is thinking, and as you mentioned earlier, thinking about process. So thinking about public art making as process. And the product is, is important and often beautiful, but the process, I think, is something that I would valorize more uh, in this book because I'm interested in the kinds of social and political outcomes that accrue to doing the work of public art making and 
discussion and reception and circulation. Yeah, the process is is very important, I think. And, you know, it comes out in so many ways uh, from distributing, you know, cans of paint Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, the walking of the passerbys or, you know, the interventions or interactions that in academia we have with one another Mm -hmm. while we we talk (laughs) about this. So, yeah, yeah, I thought it was uh, was interesting. And also, um, you know, the the rhetorical move that Mm -hmm. public art does and also mm-hmm. because you know um, and with this I'm trying to gear towards a question about methods and okay. um, you know methodology because yeah. um, you know you, you do mention the rhetorical methods uh, yeah. and you, you have before um, but just the the at least the gesture of mm-hmm. um, you know enabling that such art um, yeah. has yeah um so yeah, I'll, I'll say a little bit about methods. Um, so I would say that rhetoric functions as a kind of lens. So uh, there are many debates to be had about what rhetoric is, but one way that I operationalize it in my own thinking, uh, you know, and many people do, is uh, is the art of c- contingency that could be otherwise. So in the very you know age old fight between philosophy and rhetoric, <laughs> if philosophy is about trying to find some sort of capital T truth. Um, then rhetoric is about kind of the available means of persuasion, so responding to unknowables but making do. Um, and so it's about contingency. It's not set in stone. And so in terms of rhetorical field methods, um, a lot of rhetoricians are about interested in cultivating a kind of attunement to the contingent in whatever site you are working in. And so I think that for me, graffiti is a, a really exciting place to think about contingency precisely because um, it literally rewrites or reimagines public space. So that was sort of the overall lens. And then in terms of like the more granular process, um, I do a lot of interviews. I think that for me, the interviews are really central because the artists generate their own philosophies about what they're up to and they've thought about them and practiced them for a really long time. And so it's important for me to think about those as central and then use those to inform the kinds of concepts that they, that I'll ge- later on generate uh, in the chapters. So the interviews were important. I thought that participant observation was really important because in this text and in most of my work, I'm really interested in affect and embodiment. So be, physically being in space and place is important for understanding the kinds of uh, atmospheres and social dynamics and kinds of um, performances that take place that aren't are more than just text um, and conversation-based, so would not be accessible if I were just doing, say, like, you know, phone interviews or something. Um, And also thinking about how the process of production, as you said earlier, enables different encounters in space, so that kind of participant observation of, like, what's going on during the festival, who's passing by, what kinds of interactions are taking place, what are the works that are emerging and like, what do those works say or not say about the site and the context? So that was all really important for me. Um, and then, you know, this the history of the city and that particular space. And then thinking through that alongside various concepts about, you know, art and democracy and contingency and affect. Um, so those were, those are sort of like the overall methods that I use. So I think like concretely that was, you know, over a hundred interviews over the course of something like nine years um, and going to the festivals as much as I could to get a sense of change over time. 
in some instances, it was easier than others. So since I was based in Chicago for a while, I was able to go to the Chicago Festival, I think, four or five times versus Mexico City. I went to that one, um, I think, two or three times. And France was twice. Germany was once. And then five points, you know, I got to go back there a few times. Um, so, so yeah, so I think also in terms of methodology, using the festival, the event as kind of the method. So when you go in a recurring way for the annual festival, it's different than, you know, living in that place for a long time. So I'm also cognizant of those sorts of limitations too. So I don't know, I don't know what, you know, Perpignan is like all season round. I only really know what it's like during that little snippet in June or July. And, and then plus the kind of secondary materials. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, the, um, you know, the, the festival itself as an event, right, mm-hmm. where graffiti uh, are is, well, graffiti art is produced, right? And, you know, there's music and there are street vendors and, you know, um, food carts and everything, as opposed to graffiti that is not, you know, is just on a day to day basis. It's experienced on a day to day basis. Right, the affect is different um, yeah. from what I can understand. So I think that comes very well, um, you know, like you explained mm-hmm. very well in the book, in the chapters on the the festival, but then mm-hmm. five points, right? It kind of draws the conversation outside of the festival yes. and, you know. Um, yeah, and then raises yeah. really, I think, diff- more difficult questions precisely because it, um, the the curator of that site and, and his colleagues, you know, wanted it to endure over time and not just be an event space, which raises different demands for um, for access to genuinely public space. Right. And, you know, the experience um, that you have both from the train, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, number seven or, you know, walking or, you know, mm-hmm. when I came for the first time to New York mm-hmm. and I saw graffiti, it was a different, <laughs> you know, understanding yeah. than you had when you went for the first time, you know, yeah. or someone else. Yeah. So, um, you yeah. know, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. And also, I mean, just even, I grew up in New York and so I grew up seeing graffiti, but it was for me as a child, it was framed as, you know, within broken windows theory. So it was framed as something that was not art and dangerous and uh, pollution. (laughs) So I had to unlearn that, you know, to do the work. And that that also changes how you move through space, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are histories that inform all of these um, perceptions, but also, you know, narratives. And uh, the first chapter, uh, right, Transnational Graffiti Histories Beyond uh, Rupture Narratives, follows the evolution of this art form in the U.S. and France, Germany and Mexico. Um, And, you know, it underlines the role of um, the festival meeting of styles, uh, which considers, uh, you know, a bevy of and also considers right a bevy of other elements and histories so you know i was wondering whether um you could give us just a little snippet of these histories and narratives okay yeah um so basically you know these histories i think are available in different places sort of scattered but what i wanted to tell was a story that was about how really since the beginning of aerosol based graffiti in the u.s um there have been permission spaces whether it be on walls or in galleries or in museums or in other kinds of art spaces. And so the impetus for that chapter was this kind of weird sense that I got that people are very attached to the idea of graffiti being illegal. But Joe Austin, you know, argues and in, in taking the train that when youth started writing in New York, um, it wasn't, they didn't consider it illegal 
they just considered it a form of communication. And then later, it was framed as illegal. And then that sort of retroactively had some effects on, on the definition of the art form. And so taking up that impetus, I wanted to kind of go through canonical histories of graffiti and say like, okay, like where are the permission spaces? And how does that help us think about how graffiti has always been within, alongside, uh, in collaboration with a, a range of different institutions? Um, and also the, the folks who are producing graffiti occupy a range of social positions and, and professional tracks and all that. So, so yeah, so I talk about the 70s and the 90s in Philly and New York and kind of the common sense history of style wars um, and all that. Um, and then how broken windows theory created this narrative about illegality. But there were other moments that are less discussed but still really exciting. So for me, there's this collaboration that happened between uh, uh, the Joffrey Ballet and United Graffiti Artists in 73 called Deuce Coop, um, where the dancers painted, the dancers danced and these young graffiti artists wrote behind them. And I mean, this is like a canonical high art space. Um, and it raises really interesting questions about the relationship between graffiti and dance, which of course we, we can tell in hip hop. Um, and then, you know, there, there are also, there are clusters of different galleries in the Bronx, um, in the East village in Brooklyn, PS one, you know, in the eighties that hosted shows. And so, you know, writers have long been working with a, a bunch of other, you know, venues and publics, and then also discussing, not, I mean, zine culture is really important to the movement, but also, uh, you know, how artists are also showing up in art forum and art news in the 80s uh, and so on and so forth. So, so yeah, so even in the U.S. where there's kind of this very strict illegal legal narrative, um, there was a lot of dalliances with institutions. And then when you think about the transnational history of the movement, so when youth from the U.S. went to Europe, again, there, there was a ton of institutional collaborations. They did a bunch of gallery shows in Germany, in France, uh, in Italy, you know, got written up, work was sold. And so I just wanted to kind of destabilize this narrative of like, it was on the street and it was illegal and now it's being sold out and now it's institutional because there are always people working within multiple spaces, you know, really, really since the beginning. So I wanted to kind of highlight that. Um, and also that, as we talked about earlier, um, different locations have different understandings of legal and illegal and offer different opportunities to youth. So like in the context of Meeting of Styles in Germany, when I interviewed uh, the founder of, um, of the festival, you know, he was like an institution, uh, sorry, a municipal worker, you know, saw that we were doing graffiti and was like, do you want to use this space in this building just to hang out and you know, like what? Like that's sort of unthinkable, I think, in a U.S. context. Um, if we think back to the '90s or the '80s, but yeah, but in Germany it was like totally cool. And so I also wanted to know, like, why was that the case? And so I was looking into kind of the history of art sponsorship and um, you know how there is more decentralized uh, support and how it was a little more open-ended in terms of what counted as art and so on. So. So yeah, so those were some of the things that I was I was trying to think through, and then you know what are some permission spaces in each location, uh, yeah, and then also where does the transnational show up? And the answer is that the transnational shows up everywhere. It's been fundamental to the culture since the beginning, and so also I wanted to kind of push back against like a U.S. centric 
model because also every country has its own um, distinct cultures of uh, wall-based street expression that may or may not be graffiti, but still inform graffiti in its current iteration. So, yeah. Right, absolutely. And I think another important aspect that isn't not necessarily mentioned in the book, but, you know, I think it's it's there that um, despite the fact that, you know, we're looking at France and Germany and Mexico and, you know, and U.S. as, um, you know, one of the uh, iterations where graffiti are discussed in relation mm-hmm. to their illegality and permission, as you mentioned, um, the perception, for example, in Eastern Europe or in China or, you know, in Japan mm-hmm. um of graffiti and images that got, uh, you know, propagated through the media um, were, you know, as you said, quite, well, the ones that came from New York, right? Mm-hmm. Where, and, you know, the trains being sprayed on and things like that. However, you know, by by bringing up these narratives and histories in your book, I think you're destabilizing this image of U.S. graffiti that got mm-hmm. perceived through a very kind of, authoritarian type of of you know mm. representation by media mm-hmm. uh, and you know you're you're um, presenting a different and very important aspect to it that is not just you know illegal and hip-hop music and you know just uh, punks being on the yeah. streets but it's actually something that has a long history and you know resonates with what happens in different countries at different moments mm-hmm. um and it is you know public art and it is a form of art as opposed to just you know youth being rebellious well and um, i think it's all those things so i mean i think that um it is also yeah i mean youth rebellion is important you know hip-hop is crucial but not the history of hip hop doesn't always line up with the history of graffiti, but it certainly informs a lot of the writing culture in the U.S. Um, yeah, so I would, I wouldn't. The goal is definitely not to denigrate or say those things aren't relevant or important because they they are. Um, but yeah, like when you look through a transnational lens, there are a lot of other influences that show up too, like rock and in Mexico, for instance. You know, rock and roll comes alongside graffiti as well as like skating culture less so than hip-hop which arrives a little bit later um so yeah so you just get like a little bit more of a multi-threaded view of of what's like the what's the texture or the weave of the of the movement yeah that that's great because you know it does destabilizes this um you know, or just one way of seeing right and brings in multiple ways (laughs) yeah um, yeah, and then I mean, I think you know, I'm excited about your work because um, thinking about you know Eastern Europe, China, and Japan, there. When I've looked at works, especially when I was in Bulgaria, um, I mean, the sort of post-communist moment is really important and informative. So also thinking about how context and architecture and just history, like local history, informs the movement, even though often graffiti can be seen as like incredibly non-site specific. It's just repetition of the name. Right, right, right. Yeah, and definitely in in Romania, um, which sometimes is associated with you know was swept by with a by a similar wave as Bulgaria, um, of you know um, post nineteen eighty nine uh, movements, but um, it did uh, open a space of um, interaction with U.S. images, but also its local type of of manifestation. Um, that did not necessarily come from, um, you know, youth uh, as perceived, but, you know, um, 
and also in relation to this idea of freedom and you know a new political regime and so on so um yeah i'm I'm very excited about all of that and you know can't wait to go back and work more and take more pictures <laughs> um but you know speaking of of taking pictures and being part of the audience and the publics uh i think um Right, so in chapter two, meetings of styles in Chicago, effective balances of multiple publics, right? Um, the 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 different types of of publics and publicity uh, comes comes up, and I just wanted to to ask you to uh, you know expand a little bit on the types of publics um, and how they they interact uh, with each other and graffiti. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So the impetus for that chapter was. Um trying to think about again kind of like texturing well who we imagine as um audiences and producers of the art and thinking about how those things are a little more multiple so i think that counter public theory is really useful for thinking about changes and how dominant mores are structured but it's often a little bit binary and so by trying to create like multiple iterations of different publics that are operative in the same space at the same time um, we could think about how again people are working within, alongside, outside of different institutions at the same moment. So um, I'm not going to go through all of them, um, but, you know, one example of publics that I became more interested in was the idea of the auxiliary public. Um, So I define the auxiliary public as kind of like support team. So thinking about like what all is, and it's drawing on Howard Becker's notion of art worlds, what all is needed for the production of an artwork, it's materials, it's space, but it's also other people. And so one concrete way that that is evident at a festival is, you know, you have someone painting, but someone else needs to shake cans so that the paint doesn't get all gunky and you can work efficiently. You know, someone needs to get the water and the food, you know, someone needs to take photos of the work so that the work can circulate, um, you know, and so- someone needs to sell the paint. So, I was also trying to think about how gender is operative and um, Jessica Pabon's work, uh, Graph Girls, is like really amazing and thinking about women writers in a transnational context. So I'm, I'm not up to that, but I think that would be a great thing to read if one's interested in that question. What I was interested in sort of was in gender division of labor in terms of auxiliary publics. And so what I was noticing was a lot of, you know, wives, girlfriends, friends, um, are put in this auxiliary role. Not all, and of course there are many, many women writers who are awesome, but it is kind of a feminized public. Um, and then I was also thinking about the role of the researcher who's also auxiliary because our, our duty is to document, to circulate work that uh, formally doesn't always circulate. So that's one example. Um, another example is camouflage public. So thinking about this question of transitional moment so when an art that used to be underground becomes more visible and done in permission context there's a lot of agonizing that happens i think on the part of some writers about what that means when something that used to be kind of like secret club uh suddenly is open to everyone (laughs) um and and my now friend interlocutor bell too was talking about how there's some ambivalence there that you want to kind of hold something for yourself and so I argue that one of the ways that happens is through the medium of style. So wild style is this particular uh, form of writing that is really difficult to read if you're not, if you've not been in the culture for a while. And so that's kind of a way of holding something in reserve. Um, So I term that as a kind of act of a camouflage public. Um, You know, another example of publics are intergenerational 
publics or mentoring publics. So thinking about the ways that the old generation mentors and creates space for the new generation, but also how that's not like a always a warm and fuzzy relationship um, because sometimes the new generation wants to supersede and get rid of the old generation. And I think we feel that sometimes in academia too. <laughs> um, and then of course, drawing on Lauren Berland's concept of the intimate public sphere, so intimate publics. Um, so forms of belonging uh, that are affective and aesthetic and often involve questions of survival. Um, so thinking about how these are really fundamentally spaces of intimacy and belonging um, for a lot of different folks. So, so those are just a few. I think I have seven in the chapter. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and definitely belonging for the artists and, you know, for, for the public, but also, um, you know, for larger publics as passerbys that yeah. just go to work through, you know, the same road every day. And then there's a sort of affective connection between, yeah. you know, the, the graffiti art and their everyday practice. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah. um, and I mean, I, I'm saying this because... Um, there was one piece in Bucharest and going to college, I would, mm. I, the first month I oriented myself yeah. <laughs> by that piece of graffiti, which, you know, now it sounds, um, I mean, you know, as a trite example, but no. um, just the, you know, the spatial orientation that they provide. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a landmark. It's a way of naming place and identifying and, yeah, and I mean, Kathleen Stewart uh, in Ordinary Affects has a vignette about uh, graffiti on a sign and how it kind of like serves as a jolt, a sense, because it's a trace of a certain kind of uh, energy or affect. So, yeah. Great. Yeah, and also, um, you know, one thing that, uh, speaking of jolts and, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of um, orientation, um, chapter three, right, so meetings of styles in Mexico, performing mm-hmm. the senses, producing visual noise, Mm-hmm. Um, brings in this idea of visual noise and this, mm-hmm. you know, if we associate noise with some sort of disruption or, mm-hmm. not, you know, um, kind of expectation for, for the sound that makes sense to come out, mm-hmm. um, I thought was very, uh, very interesting. And, you know, as the chapter, um, um, you know, brings up this idea of image form letters versus um, mm-hmm. uh image form graffiti versus letter form types of graffiti yeah. and how they interacted and produced this, uh, this mm-hmm. type of noise. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I was wondering whether, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just defining that. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, the concept of visual noise is drawn from, uh, Jacques Rancière's work on speech and noise. So in his definition of dissensus, he defines it as this practice of, uh, you know, making the redrawing the count of those who don't count. So if you think about how um, politics and sort of inclusion works, uh, you know, who is inside and who is outside uh, takes on the status of the normal. But when you're disrupting that, when you're challenging its, its logic and its um, equity, then you're, you're asking for a new kind of partitioning of the sensible. And so also his work is is really important in this book because he's interested in the relationship between aesthetics and politics and they're interrelated that our sense of the possible is aesthetically conditioned, but also politically determined. Um, So I wanted to think about noise, not just in terms of literal speech, but also uh, the style and the visual impact of graffiti. So thinking about graffiti as a kind of noise that is um, gesturing to lines of exclusion that are happening in public spaces, but it's not 
completely legible, so it does not yet take on the status of speech. Um, and so, of course, also that's drawing on, on Aristotle and on the difference between Zoe and Bios, so um, political human versus sort of bare life. So in, 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 the, in the Mexico chapter, I was trying to make sense of a couple of things. One is just Nesa, Ciudad Nesa is this place where graffiti really bloomed in Mexico. And it's a really fascinating space because it's a con-urban settlement that was a squatter settlement where people had to really claim a right to the city to get access to just bare services. And uh, Bruce Campbell charts this in his book um, as well. But muralism and to some extent graffiti were used as a, as a mechanism for demanding inclusion, for demanding um, resources uh, in NASA when it was forming. And so then graffiti comes to Mexico in the, in the mid-90s, and then, Mex- and then NASA also becomes this hotbed for graffiti and really this international site because it's also the venue not only for Meeting of Styles, but two other festivals, um, Aliados and Just Writing My Name. And so I thought that was fascinating that the space that's described, you know, by like, that's not mentioned in any tour books really. Um, and was, you know, framed to me by, you know, fr- family friends who are anxious about me going there is like dangerous is like, you know, an epicenter for graffiti culture. It's, it's historic. It's important. So the festival happened there for many years and then it changed location to the historic center of Mexico city. So I also wanted to make sense of that transition. What does it mean when you go from this peripheral space that, um, has more organic connections to the community and also to larger writing cultures to a more official space uh, that's, you know, more plugged into circuits of high culture. Um, you know, one of the venues when it was moved to the city center was the Zocalo, like the center plaza of the city. So it's in front of the, the present, you know, it's just in front of all of the organs of government. It's very iconic. Um, so there uh, I was noticing some anxiety concern on the part of some of the writers. And so I argue that one of the ways that that was expressed was through a parallel exhibition that happened at the same time in Meeting of Styles. Some people that participated in the meeting also participated in the gallery exhibit, and it was called ABCD Graffiti. Uh, and it was held at Museo del Chopo, which is um, an independent art museum that I think is sponsored by the UNAM. And there it was an exhibition focusing only on lettering, so trying to recuperate lettering style. And it was um, uh, curated by Dago and Ecla, who are two writers in Mexico City um, who are very influential. Ecla is from France but has lived in Nesa for, uh, or in Mexico, first Nesa and then Mexico City for decades. Dago is a Mexican-based artist who also does ceramic graffiti. Um, and so they wanted to celebrate the letter form. So I was sort of reading that as a, as a resistant gesture to the kind of incorporation of, as you term it, image form graffiti into larger circuits of tourism and gentrification that were also happening and have been happening for, the same, for some time in Mexico City's historic center. Because the exact locations where the festival was happening are also locations that have been gentrified or being gentrified and are being part, you know, integrated into these sort of tourism circuits. Um, and so thinking also about how artists are making sense of that aesthetically, um, and in forms of talk. So, yeah, so that's, so visual noise then is a name for this kinds of, um, inscrutable texts that are, that are navigating uncertainty about whether or not it's desirable, um, to be fully legible and readable and sort of holding on to some inscrutability and holding on to some, some level of critique. And so I argue that that's operative through the form of, of wild style and lettering often.
Right, right, right. And I mean, as you're 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 thinking about letter, you're you're talking about letters, and um, you know, making sense of styles. You know, that the example that came to my mind, so I was thinking about this, um, was um, you know, the banlieue in in France, yeah. where you know, um, there are a lot of graffiti's, but then the the mm-hmm. government or you know, the city planning committee is trying to intervene by just painting white or black squares on top of of the letters. But that itself, yeah. because you know, it is bright white or is black or right. you know it still is a mark on the wall or you know on a building which itself says something right so yeah um and becomes graffiti itself despite the fact that it's covering and you know offers texture to to the wall yeah absolutely uh-huh. and also um, i mean in the context of the banlieu a lot of the sponsorship that's happening around paris um a lot of it is image-based work and street art more so than graffiti. And then the Banlu is more traditional, like letter-based graffiti. And so, yeah, so you kind of see that work out in terms of like who's able to access the gallery and in what kinds of ways. So, so yeah, but also trying to hold on to some ambivalence in the, in the writing. So I don't think it's all bad that it's in the Centro Historico. I think that there's a lot really exciting there. Um, it works out really well for a lot of the artists um, because it, it does give them more official visibility, but there is a loss that happens too. Like none of the people from NASA really make it out to the festival. It's a two hour commute, you know, and that was something that was really valuable for that community who didn't have a lot of museums and other kinds of um, official cultural institutions. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that brings, um, and not to elongate the example too much, but uh, mm-hmm. that also brings in the, you know, the question of infrastructure and not yeah. just buildings, but, you know, yeah. uh, roads and accessibility to commuting and, yes. you know, um, all of yeah. that. Yeah, and I guess that is, I mean, that's a question that graffiti has traced for a while, too, because, you know, using trains as the medium, as a primary medium for inscription highlights questions of, of access or lack of access. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we uh, in chapter four we get mm-hmm. to this idea of um, you know how um, um, graffiti is being integrated uh, into city city planning in France, uh, yeah. right? So um, in uh, meetings of styles in yeah. France, creating cities, discourse, and festivals, right? Uh, as dialectical image, there um, I think it's more prevalent than mm. so you know it builds off of the Mexico example yeah. in, in the book, and then we get to more in depth conversations mm. about city planning um, in chapter four, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, yeah. And there methodologically, it was interviews, but also looking at planning documents and kind of tracking how the language and the documents resonates with some of the language used to describe the festival. Um, and then thinking about how that creates a, a certain imagining of the city as, as a, a vibrant body, a, an unhealthy body. Um, and then also how, the, again, the writers are kind of navigating this tension within the festival itself. And so I was really taken with, um, the performance element of Meeting of Styles France, because pretty much every Meeting of Styles has some element of hip hop, um, particularly uh, rapping. But the dance performance and the the tagging competition were unique. Um, I had not seen that at other sites, and so there it was like the self conscious meditation on that and now, which you know, as an, as a critical theory scholar, I was like, oh, it's the dialectical image. <laughs> it's showing points of palpable tension. Uh, and it really was because, you know, we got to kind of like simulate the experience of illegal tagging. And so it was teaching people what that 
kind of what that is like, um, but within this very lush permission context. And so that was, that was super interesting to me. Um, and again, you know, if visual noise is about holding on to some level of inscrutability, you know, drawing on glissant's notion of opacity, then the dialectal image is sort of like a moment of waffling or oscillation <laughs> where it's like not totally sure yet what it wants to do. Um, so trying to, trying to make sense of that. And also that there's, in ter- again, in terms of the ingredients of spaces for encounter, which are agonism, plurality, interrelationality, you know, there's a lot of international uh, pluralism, but there's this question in terms of the audience of tourists, like, you know, who all is being represented and is it the folks that live very nearby in the Ashalem or in, uh, you know, in uh, Roma court in Roma um, communities, like just really steps away or is it, you know, people like me <laughs> who are visiting from the U S or, you know, from other parts of Europe who are a little bit more privileged. Um, so yeah, so that was one of the, the things that I was trying to think through. Sure, and to me, it looked very interesting um, to to see the pictures uh, and you know graffiti on 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 boards, right? So yeah. boards or wood boards, um, because it does you know raises the question or kind of defamiliarizes graffiti mm-hmm. um, from just walls mm-hmm. and just walls. I mean, it's it's a generalization, but um, yeah. it's portability in a yes. way. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And it allowed them to be in a, in a near a historic landmark. So it's near, I'm going to get the century wrong, but it's, it's near a ruin of a church that's quite, quite old. And so um, doing it on the wall itself would have been would have raised a lot of alarms for the city, but doing it on boards was more palatable. And it allowed them to set up and take down pretty quickly. And so, yeah, so portability allowed for access. And that's not an accident, I think, that it happens in France because the organizers for the festival, Canos and Astro, um, they live in Paris. And so they created this form of graffiti called cellograph, where you take cellophane and wrap it around supports to create an ephemeral model of graffiti. And so that, that was born out of the constraint of living in Paris, where almost everything is a, is a monument. Um, so it was a technique to generate spaces of permission where there was very limited space. And so I think the plywood is, uh, emerges from a similar constraint. Right. But it's very ingenious, I thought. Yeah, super clever. And, and also allows for a lot of visual uniformity. Um, and in some ways, it's also good because um, the, the boards are pre-primed. So just like logistically speaking, they're all primed with the same color. It means the artist can show up and paint really efficiently. You don't have to worry about that. And that's a, that's a real issue because um, in some places where there's less financial support, you know, artists have to do their own priming, which means that they don't have much time as much time to produce their central work. So they're more rushed. Um, so it also impacts the, the technique and the elaborateness of the work. Um, yeah. So it, it does a lot of things. That's great. I, yeah. I thought that was very the cool. infrastructure. The infrastructure is outrageous. That festival, just in terms of yeah, and, you know, they had drones. Everyone had scaffolding, wow. <laughs> and also the food trucks. Yeah, it's just you know, um, so they're all the all of the different festivals have different kinds of infrastructure. But the right. one in France is very is uh, it's very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the. You know, also, and not that in Mexico it's not the same, or Chicago, or you know, but the the tourist type of of culture, I think, might yeah. also impact a little bit yeah. the thinking that goes behind. Oh yeah, the- 
Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that a lot as well, because um, where there's such a demand for cultural events in a space such as France, there's a, there's a market and there's a real investment on the part of um, government in supporting that kind of tourism. So yeah, so I had gone to Meeting of Styles France after living in Paris for a year where every single graffiti event I ever went to had a line out the door. And so there, in terms of publics, there's a public that's a super interested and that kind of art in a way that was not so much the case in the U.S. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, speaking about the U.S., right, I, I, I'll use this to transition to Chapter 5, mm-hmm. um, right, mm-hmm. that proposes a novel framework for thinking about sites that negotiate their relationship uh, with uh, permanence and ephemerality, mm-hmm. um, in your words, um, and I, I quoted and then, um, right, so I was thinking about the main issues uh, that bring the other chapters full circle into the conversation, mm. right? So about legal graffiti art and its relationship with spaces of encounter um, that, you know, maybe these spaces do not um, appear as such anymore um, because of steady mm-hmm. planning or, you know, conflicts in terms of, you know, transformation of the city or transformation of the art um, that happened with, with Five Points. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think as we talked about earlier, um, Five Points is, is different in a lot of ways. One is that it, it was an enduring structure. So there were events at Five Points, but it wasn't just an event. Um, and it became a landmark in its own right. Um, and so in terms of scholarship on space and place, um, it's kind of like what uh, Yves-Antoine might call a public symbol, but also it was a more informal gathering place, and so it was legible for different publics in different kinds of ways. Um, also, it was exciting because it was robustly transnational, so wherever I would go in the world, people knew about Five Points and had asked if I had been there or expressed a desire to paint there, so it's kind of seen as like the crowning moment in one's uh, career as a writer if one gets to paint there. So that was all really exciting. And then also because it was in New York, um, it's one, it, was, it was one of the most iconic and long-running permission spaces in the city. So there's still some permission walls, Walls of Fame in Harlem are one example. Um, but really there aren't a ton of permission spaces in New York like Five Points. So I was interested in the central tension that emerges between um, the fact that graffiti is ephemeral and that was one of my interview questions. I would ask people what they thought, what they expected, how long they expected their work to last, how they felt when their work got gone over. And the answers would vary, but most of the time people would sort of acknowledge that graffiti is not meant to last forever. So there's this acknowledgement of ephemerality on the one hand, but on the other, there's this need for space that must endure. And so I was trying to reconcile that tension and think it through. And so One of the ways I was thinking about that was, well, even if the art is meant to be ephemeral, what's to say that there shouldn't be public spaces that are guaranteed for expression? I mean, I think that is ideally the function of public space. It's a space for dialogue and conflict and engagement. Um, So then Five Points offers a really prime example of a place that we can make arguments about the need for, for public space itself, um, not just as like a canvas, but as a, a gathering place, as an, a space for encounter. So that was the impetus um, when, I, when I heard that it was closing. And then, and then the tension arose again in the trial that happened over um, trying to create a permanent injunction on construction. And then later in the, in the spoliation suit where the plaintiffs were suing for damages. And so, you know, 
Mears and and his co-plaintiffs were kind of in a bind where they had to basically make an argument about why graffiti had recognizable stature. Um, That's a term that doesn't have a ton of content, but in terms of precedent, it's defined largely as uh, impact and aspiration towards permanence was how uh, the defendants were defining it. And so again, thinking about this tension between like the essential ephemerality of graffiti versus the need to claim that it's important and that it has value. And so how do we figure out vocabularies for value that aren't about permanence? And so um, to link it back to our discussion about infrastructure, for me, it's about, it is about social infrastructure. So I think that ephemerality teaches us that even though like uh, moments of expression might be temporary, their conditions for emergence require ongoing labor, social infrastructure and space for inscription. And so that raises the need for public space, for interrelational networks, for, a plurality of voices. And if we're missing any of those things, then, um, you know, it's not possible to have robust public communication. So, so those were some of the big questions that I was working through. And then, you know, trying to think about this other issue, which is when we're writing about graffiti as scholars, this case basically revealed to me that our work has impact because it can be used in a lawsuit. Like it shows, it it shows whether or not people care about (laughs) the art form and that was pretty wild. <laughs> and it was like, but then it, you know, it, really, it impacts like how we write about it and what, what does it mean? And do we just turn it into the same thing as fine art? Because there's a lot of debate about whether or not that's the case. So, so yeah. So then I did a close reading of uh, a bunch of the legal documents and, and then, you know, included an interview I'd done with mirrors uh, before the building was destroyed and then some photos of the site to, to think through some of these questions but um, ultimately, I'm making an argument for the generative value of ephemerality for, for, you know, for public space, but only insofar as we consider ephemerality as part of a larger infrastructure uh, of, of um, endurance where we have platforms for, for discussion. And then the kind of sub-argument there is an argument that's more specific to my field of rhetoric, which is that if rhetoric is obsessed with contingency, which is maybe another name for the ephemeral, um, we need to think through how we define ephemerality more in, in greater detail. And so this chapter was trying to do that as well. Right. And the, um, you know, I mean, I, I was just thinking that, um, you know, ephemerality of the uh, of the moving pieces, right? Not necessarily mm-hmm. of the, um, you know, the whole issue itself, right? Or of the, the public space yeah. as it is, but more of, you know, instantiations at different moments um that exactly yeah so um you know it's it's, yeah yeah Yeah, and I was Mm -hmm. yeah I mean and they were just in the in the case because we we don't have a vocabulary really for public art that's anything more than individual artworks that are autonomous there just there wasn't really a language um available I think to name what five points was up to so I was trying to provide some language in this chapter um, to think about this question of the value of graffiti, not just to, not as autonomous individual works of art, but rather as a as a space for encounter, as a conversation that's deeply embedded and in, in conversation and re- related to dependent on uh, public space. So so that was the goal um, in that chapter, and that was that was pretty fun to write. I think that was maybe the favorite thing that I got to write because it was like super challenging, but. I don't know. Yeah, but it was, I don't know. And then like, yeah, legal rhetoric is, is wild. So, and then also just like returning to the site, it was, it was very like infuriating and moving. Um, sure. And all of that. 
<laughs> all of that at the same time and you know yeah. separate yeah 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 of course well we've taken a lot of your time so um my last question you know regards your current project so what are oh, you okay. working on right now okay thanks for asking um the current book is also about graffiti but Great. it's <laughs> looking at state-sponsored graffiti in leon guanajuato mexico and it asks what happens when the state becomes the primary sponsor of a formerly subcultural and um repressed oppressed you know uh officially sanctioned practice um and so i trace that history from 1999 to 2018 um using a lot of interviews and participant observation and also tracking shifting discourses about graffiti in the newspapers and argue that institutionalization functions to unbraid previously braided and diverse strands of youth culture And the evolving conversation about graffiti in Leon throws into relief um, shifting definitions of and investments in ideas of youth, the city image, and sovereignty and citizenship. Um, so asking some similar questions is this book, but thinking about really thinking about the role of the state. Uh, because in this book, the state is kind of a liminal shadowy figure that kind of pops up a little bit in France. And is kind of an arbiter of some things in uh, the context of five points, but not entirely. And so what happens when it becomes one of the main partners and what kind of fractures does that um, exacerbate within graffiti communities? Um, what kinds of new definitions about good or bad citizen subjects, you know, youth does that uh, produce? So, um, so yeah, so I'm thinking about a lot of those things still uh, and, and thinking about it in the context of Mexico. So instead of a transnational study, um, it's looking at one site, but thinking about how it's informed by the transnational, uh, more longitudinal, more embedded. So instead of just the event space, thinking about everyday spaces over, over the course of decades. Um, yeah, so, so that's the new project. It's called um, Citizen Voices in Aerosol, Leon's Graffiti Worlds. Um, And then I'm also working on a co-authored book project with a colleague in Spain about graffiti, tourism, and creative cities discourse in Europe, Latin America, and the U.S. And so that'll be a set of case studies about those questions uh, in, in different cities from around the world. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and I can't wait to, to read both of those and also oh. interview <laughs> you again. <laughs> Thanks, Victoria. Sure. So um, thank you very much for, for this interview and for talking to us about your book. And I'm looking forward for, you know, more work and more, more interviews like this. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure.